Thanks, Nodia, Simon, and Projector Sound Team. Thank you to everyone who also shared words. Um, I needed those words myself. So thank you for boldness, faithfulness. <clears throat> right, good morning, everyone. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew. Um, I see once again new faces that I haven't seen, so good to see you and hope, hope to meet you sometime soon. Um, as you can see on the screen there, we are looking at Worldviews Part 2. So those of you who weren't here last week, it was Worldviews Part 1. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and I'll go through a brief summary of that just now, but before I start, um, uh, in light of all the new people and new um, faces almost every Sunday, and the fact that we are often very quick to hear something and move on to the next thing, just letting you know there'll be a bit of a recap of last week's um, sermon at the start, and uh, <coughs> really to help us to you would have picked it up in, in some of the other preaching this year when we are prone to take something in, say, oh wow, that was great, how cool, next week, even the next day, something else, new teaching, new, new this, new that. So we are taking it slow, so if you are frustrated with that, it is intentional. intentional. I haven't just been lazy to use the first half of last week's sermon. It's a deliberate step. Okay, so... <clears throat> Last week we spoke about worldviews, and we'll, we'll also briefly recap the definition of a worldview, but what we also looked at last week was, before we get to worldviews, we set the scene for apologetics. That, in short, being the requirement that we defend our faith. Okay? Apologetics means a defense, a defense of the faith. We looked at the examples of this in Scripture, the first one being there from Acts 19, and this is Paul, and it says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In the 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. We see elsewhere in Acts, Paul reasoning, arguing, persuading, defending. And it was to the Jewish people and it was to Greeks and it was to whoever was in the marketplace. There is a place where we need to articulate very clearly what we believe, um, which by necessity means we also sometimes need to articulate what we don't believe. Okay, So that's where, why, hence a worldview sermon, as I mentioned last week, it's maybe something we typically would look at in Bible school or, or something like that. But there is merit in us as a congregation looking at it together. So that in summary is apologetics. Paul did it all through scripture. We will need to do it. Okay, next slide. That we looked at last week. We even as we examine some other worldviews, we saw that there are exclusive claims that Christianity makes. If you read scripture, very soon you pick up on some exclusive claims. Jesus says a lot of things in black and white, and he doesn't leave us a host of options. He says it's either this or that. Christianity is full of that. And other worldviews in the world also make claims that are in conflict with that. So, if you didn't know it already, there will be clashes of worldviews. Our worldview will be assaulted and there will be a war, a war of worldviews, if you like. Um, next slide. In 1 Peter 3, we see um, the same thing. We looked at Paul arguing, persuading, and, and everything like that. But Peter also says, But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If we can go to the next slide, we highlighted a few aspects. Oh, is there another slide after that? Uh, no, go back a few. Is that one Peter one happened twice? Okay, even if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'll underline it here. 
<clears throat> if we look at the scripture, there are a couple of components that we see there, as we saw last week. Those who speak maliciously against your good behavior, conflict. Not everyone likes Christians, I don't know if you've realized. And no one really likes what scripture has to say either, or, or not everyone. Um, so they will speak maliciously, fact of life. Um, and working backwards, Peter is saying there's a way that you articulate what you believe, and there's even a way that you interrogate other worldviews. It's gentleness and respect. The thing about a worldview is that it's really, really deep. You know, if someone comes to say what you believe about life and life hereafter and meaning of life, everything is a complete lie, that's quite something. It's quite something to tell someone. Okay. None of us would really like, none of us actually enjoys that if someone comes to say, oh, you know, your faith in Jesus is it's a bit of a joke. Da, 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 da. Worldviews run deep, okay. Hence, gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Um, and we saw as well last week that we need to be, answer, we need to be able to answer people about the hope that we have. So, so apologetics is 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 not about crushing those who are wrong, crushing other people. It is not about being right for the sake of being right. But the flavor of what we're communicating, if we look at the scripture, what should happen is you communicate, hey, I have a hope. Someone says, what's that hope based on? Then you need to be ready to say. But your communication is that you have a hope, not you are wrong. Okay. And then we looked at the last, sorry, well, the first thing there, and this is where I want to segue into worldviews, um, is where it says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And that's the crucial component. And that is where I believe worldviews, again, we'll get to a definition, that can be the difference, whether it's growing as a believer or into maturity or trying to present the gospel to someone who does not believe Worldviews are that obstacle to having Christ set apart as Lord in your heart. Peter is saying that's where you start. It needs to be clear in your heart who is Lord. There mustn't be competition there in your heart and in your mind about who's actually Lord at the end of the day. But it's worldviews that challenge that. Worldviews challenge lordship, the Lordship of Christ. All right, next slide. That's kind of what I just said there. As f in terms of growing into maturity and in terms of presenting the gospel, worldview assumptions are obstacles to that. The one guy I listened to tried to coin the word gospstacles in humor to, 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 to try and, but it helped me actually to remember it. There are obstacles to the gospel and they're all to do with worldviews. All right. So worldview is a lens through which we look at the world and try to make sense of it. Worldviews attempt to answer the big questions of life. Next slide. So <clears throat> we're going to go into a quick discussion just now, but that was the definition of the worldview. It's the way in which you interpret facts around you. It's the way in which you think make decisions it it really it's, it's kind of like a dna almost it it kind of your worldview will program you to to think about things a certain way look at things a certain way and behave in a certain way and the the value in understanding that is for our own maturity and for presenting the gospel so we saw here in act 17 an example is paul it says so paul standing in the midst of the area pagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So the context for those who missed last week is that Paul enters into Athens and he's walking around there and the scripture says that his spirit is provoked. He sees that the Athenians worship just about anything. There are so many altars as they go around the city. Paul just sees altars to this God and that God and he even sees an altar to an unknown God. So Paul is provoked in spirit by this, and as it happens, he ends up having an audience in the Areopagus, which is a big conference area, I suppose you could say. But anyway, it's a, an, an amphitheater of sorts, and, and Paul has an audience. 
But what we see Paul, what we see about Paul and what he's going to say is first he perceives where the Athenians are at. So that's why I've underlined the word perceive there. Paul, walking around, could see where these Athenians were at. He could see, brothers, I perceive, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. By virtue of all these idols that are here, you guys quite like to worship things. Um, and then Paul latches on to the unknown God altar. He says, okay, I even saw an altar that says to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about a God that you don't know. And then he presents the gospel. And many people actually believe. Um, so that perception is why it is good for us to have an understanding of worldviews. And again, not all of us need to become apologists or philosophers or, or things like that, but it's healthy to have a perception and an understanding of the world we live in and the way in which ways in which people look at that world. Okay, next slide. So before we go to discussion, we also highlighted that Oh, maybe this is the one that's got all the underlining on. Yes, okay. In Colossians, Paul is writing to them, and he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ so what we see in scripture here is what we've highlighted what i've underlined there paul established a church in Colossae and was writing to them and he was writing certain things to them for their help he says they were established in the Lord. They'd been rooted and built up in Him, established, um, just as they were taught. So Paul taught, and, and by sound and healthy doctrine and teaching, they became established and firm in their faith. But Paul says that is not, that will come under assault. That, that's something you need to protect. And he says, and that's why he's writing to them, because other things will come to disrupt that firmness of your faith in Christ. They will offer alternatives. And the, the thing about them is that Paul says that they are plausible. That's the scary thing. If someone comes to you and says, actually, Father Christmas made the earth, you're not likely to believe it because you don't believe in Father Christmas anyway. Okay, so there's some arguments that are not plausible. No one would really believe them. But the danger is the plausible ones. That on the surface, they appear to make sense. They are attractive. They are seductive in what they are saying. So there is a sobriety and a vigilance that we need about this. Plausible arguments will come to turn us away from Christ, would come to, to challenge Christ being set apart as Lord in your heart. The ultimate thing is that Paul says they are empty. So that's an encouragement. They are plausible on the surface, but when you really interrogate them, they are empty. But... There is a work to be done. He says, see to it. See to it. There is a defense. There is a, a, a dressing up with armor, a readiness to resist that we need to have against plausible arguments that come to disrupt our firmness of faith in Christ. All right. Next slide. So these are the, these are the questions that worldviews attempt to answer or deny, or some would even try and ignore these questions. So... But most human beings, when we're not too distracted, we think about these things. And there's, a, there's something to be said for distraction. A lot in our, the way we live in our society, whether it's the real intensity of our jobs or, or the availability of content and media, whatever it is, there are a lot of things to distract us from. I mean, it would be quite interesting if we did a poll, how many of us had really thought about these deep questions the last while. So I want to say to you that just because you don't ask the question a lot doesn't mean it's not a question. You might just be distracted. And the whole world can be distracted. But deep down, when you slow down a bit and you... Interestingly, often suffering is the thing that would wake us up from our slumber. And in that way, it's, it's, it's a graciousness 
it's, sometimes it's good to suffer. I don't want to get into sermon on suffering because <laughs> that's gluck. It's quite complex. Um, but but suffering will often wake us up and we'll ask these questions. Does God exist? How did everything begin? Who am I and why am I here? Am I living a good life? What happens after I die? Why is there so much evil in the world and why do we suffer? <clears throat> So that's what, that's what worldviews attempt to answer. And we're going to discuss now. With that in mind, I want you to turn into groups. I think that the next slide is the discussion slide. Um, I want you to, to discuss in light of those big questions, as we did last week. Hopefully you're sitting with different people, or this might be the first time you're having this discussion. But in five minutes, quickly discuss amongst yourselves. Insofar as different worldviews try to answer those big questions... Answer the first question, can everyone's worldview be correct? And the second question, which worldviews are you most in contact with at work or, or whatever it is in your daily life that you are doing? Um, which worldviews do you come into contact with the most apart from your own? Okay. Ready, steady, go. Lots of discussion happening. Not many of you look bored, so that's good. Um, it's great to see people engaged in discussion. And these are good discussions to have. I'm, I'm sure many of you could probably carry on for quite long if I didn't, if I didn't interrupt you now. But I want to show you something. So feel free to have those conversations later on again. Um, right, so again, if I had lots of time, it would be awesome to hear what came up. But no doubt, lots of ism, relativism, consumerism. Jacques came up with successism. <laughs> uh, lots of isms to be discussed. And I think when one starts to try and think about it, you realize that a lot of the isms that one might identify are actually almost offspring of other ones. You've got like parent isms that have lots of children and then they remarriages and even more children. So there's a lot of that that's going on. So hopefully today I'm going to explain to you how I see it. Hopefully it organizes your thoughts a little bit for you. Again, there might be philosophers in the house who could, who could school me on this, but I'm just going to give you what I see, open to correction and debate. Um, all right, what is the next slide there? Humanism. Okay, so today we are going to talk about humanism. You'll see it's linked to last week. So last week we spoke about, we spoke about scientism and naturalism. So... Very briefly, scientism, we said, was, well, I said, and you guys didn't disagree with me too vocally, but scientism was the assumption that science can explain all things. Uh, we went to pains to say that science is great, science in its proper place is awesome, it is a gift from God to, for man to search things out, and science in the right place results in more deeper worship of God. So science can explain a lot of things. But sometimes we can take that too far and assume that science actually explains all things. And when you, when you adopt that assumption, anything that is not a scientific, that can't be put on a table and measured and poked and prodded, is irrelevant. It's discounted. It's not worth considering. And we looked at the, the natural outflow of that assumption that science can explain all things was naturalism, which is to say that matter 
is all that there is. There is no supernatural. There is no need for supernatural. But then you are forced to answer those questions, the big questions, questions of origin, uh, with, in a scientific way. And we saw that there are a couple of problems with that. We looked briefly at evolutionary theory and, and the big assumptions that it has to make. Science, science as a discipline doesn't have the wherewithal to actually answer all those big questions. But if you're going to try and answer them with science, you're going to have to make even more assumptions. And those are the assumptions of naturalism and evolutionary theory and so on and so on. So um, you're welcome to listen to last week's one. I'm not going to dwell too long on that, but that is enough for us to explain, to set us up to look at humanism. So Oh, this. I wanted to throw it in last week, but I'll throw it in this week, and it's, I think it's actually much more relevant this week. But it's just a quote from a, it's a lyric from a, a song that I like. Many of you guys might know Beautiful Eulogy, but that's what they say in one of their higher grade raps. Um, do the stars disappear when the blind look at the sky, or do they simply fail to see what was there the whole time? I love it. You guys might not have taken me for a, a hip-hop fan, but... I am, uh, but of some. I'm talking like the higher grade raps. I've heard beautiful eulogy in Godfrey's house before. I know he knows it. Um, not the nonsense that's on radio. One has to marvel sometimes at the absence of content or depth when you switch the radio on. Anyway, sounding like an old man. But <clears throat> that's a great quote. I won't over-explain it. I'll just leave it there for you guys. Um, but it... it by analogy, it exposes a lot of things about assumptions that we would make and the way that we live truths or accept lies because that's all we know. And we assume, because that's all I know, that's all there is. Okay. But it's not. So, before we talk about humanism, I want to say here, before we could get to definition, it is actually really hard to define even if you read up on it and read up on other philosophers' critiques of it, it's quite difficult to define. Um, even if you go onto Humanist International's website, which I did as part of research for this, they've got a page there of definitions. And they range, they range from like very scientific type of rationalistic, rational definitions to very political, airy-fairy type of nice, warm, fuzzy definitions of humanism. So there are hundreds of definitions. And I actually had a thought on this. <clears throat> Part of it is probably because at its root, it's rejected authority higher than man's. So man is the highest authority in humanism. But then you've got a problem. Who puts me in authority over you? Who, who puts you in authority over me? Um... Who made you God over me? Is a question that the humans would have to ask one another because we're all on that plane. We've eliminated a higher being. How do we answer questions of authority now? Is it whoever's cleverer? Is it whoever's richer? Um, is it whoever's got the most power? Who's got the most votes? That's why it's quite difficult to define. But in the end, we do have a definition. I went again, Humanists International. And this is, what, this is their minimum statement on humanism. Humanism is a democratic and ethical life stance that affirms that human beings have the right and responsibility to give meaning and shape to their own lives. Humanism stands for the building of a more humane society through an ethics based on human and other natural values in a spirit of reason and free inquiry through human capabilities. Humanism is not theistic, and it does not accept supernatural views of reality. So there, very clearly stated, as the minimum statement, all the humanists got together in international alliance and said, these are the things here. If you want to come and say, if you want to introduce a supernatural component, you're not humanist anymore. It doesn't feature. So you can't have both.
And what I'll say after reading this, after scrolling through the rest of the landing page and a couple of the other things they discuss on there, I, I actually got very nervous. I started to be, get a little bit, yeah. And I think the scary realization that I had was when you read through that, you see all the nice pictures of everyone smiling and patting one another on the back, I realized how, how, how close it is to a lot of what I would hold as good, as valuable, as, as worthy. The things that they aspire to, the values that humanists would have per definition. I was a little bit shaken by how close it was to some of my own beliefs. And again, I think Outright lies are easy to identify. Outright absurdities are quite easy to let go of. But the scary thing about, about humanism is, is how close it is. And we're gonna I'm hopefully gonna give us some, some weaponry and some armor to, to help us um, not fall for it. But it is extremely, extremely seductive. In aspiration, in what it aspires for, it, it goes after a lot of the same things that I would go for. A lot of the same things that I would go for as a Christian, it also wants a lot of those same things. Not all. It's not completely compatible, but it almost in some ways looks like it heads in the right direction. And that was very alarming to me. As you read it, you almost like, huh. Uh, you, like, you find that all of a sudden the plank got very narrow that you're walking on. And when you read it, you, I started to realize how entrenched it is in Western culture and outlook, which is ours. It is, it is entrenched. It's almost like Western society cannot not think like a humanist. It, it, is, it is programmed in such a deep way way and as we'll look at it later in many ways it is a religion of its own some people will call it a civic religion it is a, a religion of the people having removed supernatural authority what can we come up with and that is what humanism is it is a civic religion man has come up with a framework to answer the big questions of life to do things in life to make decisions in life and not only that, it is, it is entrenched in institutions. It is institutionalized. Universities, educational institutions, even things, this was interesting to me, things like the United Nations. I always had a bit of a suspicion of them, but I'm not keen on them. But <laughs> International Humanist Association is a core advisor to the United Nations. And a lot of these other organizations that exist exist because they attempt to answer the question, okay, God is off the scene. How can we as man achieve what is good and right apart from him? So man really attempts to answer that question and he sets up institutions to try and achieve those ends apart from God. So I just want to say it's like when you look at it, you realize your the separation between a true believer and a humanist it's stark, but it's very subtle. You might not see it very quickly. And so I want to say that there is a sobriety, a vigilance that we need as we live. But hopefully we're going to get to some, some things that can help us. You can look at the next slide. So here's a little diagram that I made to make sense of it. Um, <clears throat> and this is how I see it. So on the left you've got Christianity. On the right, you've got naturalism, which is what we looked at last week. So naturalism rejects, also rejects supernatural accounts of origin, of meaning. In naturalism, matter is all that there is. We are evolutionary beings being driven by nature, unguided processes which drive us. And there are a couple of tenets of that which are natural selection and so on and so on and so on. Humanism, I see in, in base characteristics as a child of naturalism it also says oh great 
we've been set free from a high authority. We have been set free from God. Um, we adopt at our, as our basis a naturalistic worldview. And I ask it if you took naturalism to its logical conclusions, if we were merely evolutionary animals fighting for survival, based on what could you tell me that I was wrong in oppressing someone else who was weaker to weed them out for my own advantage? If you took naturalism to its logical conclusions, you have savagery, you have a, an unlivable world and existence. Because based on what would you appeal, make appeals about, it is wrong that you kill that smaller person to take their money. Based on what would you tell me that if we are merely animals fighting for resources? Now, humanism likes naturalism's foundation, likes the lack of accountability to a creator, lacks, enjoys the, the absence of, of judgment or a need for righteousness or aspects of eternity likes that from naturalism but I would say it doesn't it can't answer the, the someone still needs to answer the questions of okay so where does naturalism go humanism I believe then and you'll later see it's or I saw on the website it's literally spelled out like that humanism needs you need a sense of right and wrong you need ethics you need morals you need to understand black and white, justice and un justice versus injustice, uh, right versus wrong, and so on and so on. But humanism pulls meaning, attempts to generate its own meaning from wherever it feels like generating it. So the humanists will say, we believe in the inherent value of human beings. And I would say, based on what? And humanists attempt to just say, because we said so. Because based on your parent, humans don't have intrinsic worth. Humans can actually out-weed one another out for their own benefit. So based on what do we ascribe value to people? Humanism just says, we believe it because we believe it. And they take it, I would say, insincerely and deceptively. Draws aspects of meaning from Christianity or other theologies, other theistic worldviews, from other spiritualities, type of Eastern spiritualities, vague things, other things of ethics, and all sorts of other places. And that is why it becomes very hard to define. Because at its root, it doesn't, also doesn't have the wherewithal to add meaning to life. But it recognizes the need for it, and so tries to add it. It just steals it from other things disingenuously okay so I want to look at humanism the, the essentials so the essentials of, of humanism are that man is God so as I said naturalism would say there is no God let's just see how it pans out humanism says no we need a God but we will be God we don't need a divine presence we don't need a creator we were not created but we need a god so we will just be god in humanism man is god and i think the scary part there is it's easy to identify someone worshiping false gods it's not always easy to identify when you're worshiping yourself or worshiping man that is one of the major seductions of humanism man is god which is a bit harder to detect than man bowing down to a wooden statue or a whatever it is. Man worshipping himself is much more seductive. The next essential, man is good. Okay, Also a direct opposition to scriptural accounts of man's nature. Man is good. Man is righteous. Man, There's no original sin. There's no original fall. Man is righteous. Man can be counted righteous on his own terms. And man is able. So the flavor of humanism, and again, we might not always see it because it's literally the water we swim in, but it is very aspirational. It, it sounds like almost every political party you've ever heard. Every guy who's got up onto a stage to motivate the people. It is, man is good, man is able, 
We can do it. Let's pursue this thing. Let's move forward. Let's grab hold of the future. We can do it. It's very, very aspirational. And, and that's, the de- that's the deceptive part because to aspire for things, you know, God has given us dominion over the earth. So there's an aspirational component to why we are here. It is to have dominion and to bring his kingdom. Okay? But humanism borrows that and says, well, let's build our own kingdom. Almost like the Tower of Babel, let us make a name for ourselves. And so the fundamental questions, the fundamental challenges that, human, that humanism holds, as I can see it, are questions of authority and of righteousness. Those are the fundamental fists raised in the air. Who has the authority? Humanism? Man has the authority. But the other inconsistency, man must naturally then decide that he has more authority than others, and man must set up in his own systems. See, the naivety of of the man is good, man is righteous, we can do it. It's, it's, it's so disjoint. It moves further and further from reality. Because at the end of the day, one of us is going to have to claim superiority over the other. One of us is going to have to say, you are wrong and I am right. We are right and you are wrong. And I don't think any of us has not experienced that pressure. So, you know, I tend to think in earlier times, humanism is not merely there's no God, there's no accountability, let's have a party. The problem with humanism, because those are quite easy to, to, to rebuff or to, you can quite, questions of, of um, moral, moral relativism are quite easy to debunk. You know, you can't have everyone deciding what's right or wrong in his own eyes. But the thing about humanism now is it says, no, we have, we've actually got a framework for right and wrong, and we came up with it. We discovered it on our evolutionary journey, and we've collectively decided what is right and what is wrong. Yet it still retains a very relativistic nature. As we can see, it's always shifting. What's right and wrong is always shifting. And from a Christian's perspective, more and more wrong is added into the right category more and more right is moved over into the wrong category in the humanist's theology. Yeah, I suppose they can have a theology because it's a, there is a God, it's man. Um, <clears throat> so that's the, that's the interesting part. Though it is thrown off a supernatural authority, a supernatural lawgiver, mankind craves righteousness. Mankind needs righteousness. Mankind can't escape that sense of, of needing righteousness. But humanism attempts to answer that question on its own terms. Um, all of us have felt that pressure of, of that. So I want to get into some, hopefully some armor, some things that, that's that scripture, and I want to, yeah, I'm just really trusting that God by his spirit would, would correct things, you know, when you try and fight fire with fire, when you try and fight worldly doctrines by worldly means, you are very much a sitting duck, actually. Those are not the weapons of the warfare that God has given us because they are not good enough to defeat those things. That's why God hasn't given them to us. He's given us better weapons because they are the only ones that will defeat it. So, I want to read some scripture and allow God to speak to us. So, this is from Romans 1. This is one you can put on your fridge. That's... It's going to help you stay the course. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As we mentioned last week, and very characteristic of humanism is a suppression of the truth. The truth is there. It's not that it's not known. It's just suppressed. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of immortal God, for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In that passage we see a couple of things. Scripture is saying that God's eternal nature as creator, as an authority over us, as our maker is clearly perceived. Scripture is saying there's no doubt about it. The only way you cannot believe that is to deny it. Humanism is a denial of that. It has no proof to stand upon. It is simply a denial. It just says, no, we won't accept that. The other thing I want to draw attention to us as believers is when it says they neither glorified, honored him as God or gave him thanks. And I want to say for us as Christians, honor and thanksgiving as Christian disciplines are a or an immunization in a way. They are, if we can keep those things steady in our lives, there is hope. You know, God can still speak to us because as long as we still honor God as God and by definition understand ourselves as man, God can speak to us. God can protect us. God can lead us. And the thing about it, as we discussed in, as we said in worship, it's, it's God's due Honor and thanksgiving are due to Him, regardless of our feelings, actually. Whether we feel like thanking Him, or whether, um, wherever we might think we are, in terms of honoring God and thanking Him, really, that's, that's the, if we're going to say, I don't feel like it, therefore I won't, we are going to end up worshiping our feelings. Those are His due regardless of, of where we are at. Um, and it takes submission and humility. So if we do those in disciplines, I know we don't always feel thankful. You don't always feel like worshipping. But as a Christian discipline, ascribe unto the Lord the glory due His name at all times. And in all places, He's worthy of that. Okay, And it's an act of submission and humility on our part when we bring that to Him despite our feelings, when we choose to worship Him rather than our feelings or whatever our flesh is trying to tell us to do. And then that will keep us on the track. The other things that we see in that passage are, Paul talks about it as futile thinking, darkened hearts, claiming wisdom, but in reality it is foolishness. So again, it looks a certain way. It, it claims wisdom. It's a lot of thought. It's a lot of reasoning, a lot of thinking. But Paul is saying, once you've let go of God as the authority, once you've decided that you're not going to honor Him as God or, or you're not going to thank Him, you can be thinking a thousand thoughts a minute, but it's futile thinking. You can have all sorts of great aspirations in your heart, but your heart has become darkened. He's saying it is a, a deception. And again, the word that we see twice there is exchange. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They exchange the immortal for the mortal. Again, to the point that humanism is a denial. It is a conscious, said there's a deception, but there's a conscious exchange. I'd rather not have this. I want this. Exchanging truth for a lie. And right at the end, we have the heart of it, the heart of humanism, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. It's been swapped around in humanism. You have the creator and the creatures who bring worship to him, humanism says this. No, no, the creature is at the top. Now, as long as we can remember that we are below the creator, there's hope. But as soon as we start <clears throat> just putting the creature just that little bit higher, we're on the track of, of, of humanism. And, and Romans is really great for this in general. I would say Paul lays all of this out the truth about man. And 
I did a sermon last year on sinful man when we looked at the pillars of the gospel, but central to understanding the gospel is understanding who man really is apart from God. Scripture says one thing, humanism says the complete opposite. Scripture says we are born into sin. There is no one righteous, not one. Humanism says no man is actually righteous. Man is actually good. If he really tries, he can be good. And it, it completely rejects the Bible's definition of man. Romans is a great book to, to keep you in reality. And then, true righteousness. I'm going to wrap it up quite soon, but as I said earlier, humanism tends to answer a question of righteousness. And I want to allude to something um, that we preached on last year, but first let's look at Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And at this point, I want to hark back to a sermon that Debbie had last year. And it came, really came out of intercession where we felt God show us that there were three torpe- torpedoes coming towards us, uh, towards the city from a submarine out there. And we basically understood God to be saying to us that the three torpedoes that would come against us are um, consumerism, religion, and humanism. And the scripture that it speaks to the scripture because consumerism offers you a false joy. God says there is joy for you. Consumerism says no, joy is over here. Religion offers you a false peace. God says in my kingdom there is peace. Religion says no, there's also peace over here. And humanism, God says I have righteousness for you. In Romans he says you are sinful beyond measure but I have righteousness for you through my son. Humanism says there's actually an alternative source of righteousness. And as we've said, it's man establishing his own righteousness. And we're all familiar with those various forms of it. Okay? I don't think I even have to name them. But all of us have sat in those things at work. We've felt it driven from the top at work. The values of man's righteousness, the values of modern society, be it tolerance, be it diversity, be it things that, again, when they come from the correct source, are good. To tolerate and love your neighbor is a biblical command. But when man says, this is our standard of righteousness, and when you fall short of what we define here, never mind that it'll change in two years' time or even less, you are not righteous. Okay, so that's, that, is the, that is the crucial thing. And, and <clears throat> there's a lot of pressure on us to conform to the world's standard of righteousness. And I just want to repeat that when the locus of wisdom on what is right is with man, you're in big trouble. Because that's where it is. The righteousness of our day, of our culture and society, is one that has been contrived by man. But Paul is saying, as we read there in Romans, he's saying when man is the locus of wisdom, you're in trouble. It's coming from from futile thinking. It's coming from foolishness upon foolishness upon foolishness is coming from darker 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 man cannot be trusted as a definer of righteousness but man does in our society and it's no wonder that it is warped many of us have been outraged at the latest proclamations of what is good what is acceptable what is right in the eyes of the world many of us you cannot believe it you cannot believe it that, that, that pedophilia would start to be considered a sexual orientation rather than a, like a, a defective part of your mental health or whatever, you know. Many of us have been outraged to see a progression of decay. Things more and more wrong being put into the right category. More and more right being pushed out. So the world will, will relentlessly pressurize us to accept that righteousness. And an image that I had in my mind is like a, I saw two ships, two big ships, one tethered to the other by a rope. And they're almost headed for the shore. And it's like the one was God. And as long as we were tied to him, we could actually make it to the shore. He could steer our course. But it felt to me like humanism cuts that rope and says, no thanks. We're going to chart our own course and head back out into the open ocean. But being untethered to God, it's really 
a ship that turns this way, then it turns that way, then it turns this way. It is lost out on the open ocean with no rudder. And as I said earlier, it becomes more and more unhinged from reality. As the exploration widens of discovering our meaning, discovering the things we want as man, discovering our righteousness and what is good, the darker and darker it becomes, the more and more foolish and futile. And and as I say, this, I hadn't always seen this, but I, I really believe God is showing it to us through that intercession, through that sermon. A lot of things clicked into place for me because I knew humanism was, was um, you rejected God. You put Matt yourself as God. But then I thought, okay, so those guys then assume that anyone can do what is right in his own eyes. But actually, no, it's a step further. Humanism says, no, there is right, but we define it. We define it. And that is... That has opened my eyes to so, to so much um, of the pressures that are upon us to accept a different righteousness, to strive for a different righteousness. And yeah, I might be um, exposing my own, I don't know, lack of wokeness or, or not, not wokeness. Like I, and let me just tell you before I dig a hole for myself. I came across a term last year called virtue signaling. I was like, wow, okay. I wondered why for so many years when you see someone, hey guys, I'm X, Y, Z, I recycle and I'm vegan and I'm this or I'm this and I'm this and I'm this or whatever it is. You can, you can be a vegan by conviction from the Lord. That is beautiful. But so much of what we see out there is people advertising their virtue, saying, hey guys, everyone, just take a look. Take a look how righteous I am. Next person comes, uh, and there's a tack on that, and then their friends come and say, no, I am righteous. No, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it's maybe a silly example, and, and I don't think the, you know, I don't want to talk about virtue signaling, but I just want to say, it, something clicked into place for me when I realized that humans still desire righteousness. You've cast off God, but you still desire righteousness. You just want to do it for yourself. That pressure is out there. That pressure is out there for all of us to advertise our righteousness, to, to make sure we fall on the right side of what is being decreed as righteous in the day. This is, this is what is seen that it's righteous in the, at the moment. There's great pressure for you to make sure you fall on the right side of that. And I just want to say, when man is defining righteousness, you have no business as a believer even worrying about that. I want us to just read Matthew 6, 1-4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father sees in secret will reward you. So we can just go back to that first part of scripture. I mean, is that not what we see today? Everyone practicing their righteousness, affirming their righteousness for all to see, so that they may be praised by them, or at the very least not found unrighteous by them, not found unrighteous by the world. And in this parable, Jesus is talking about giving, but he talks about the way the hypocrites pray, the way that they um, give, the way that they fast. It's all as an advertisement to say, I've got righteousness, take a look. And how, that, is, that is everything you see out there in the world. And it's even institutionalized in the way we advertise what we're doing as a company. And I mean, I don't want to go into the nitty-gritty of that, but I just want to say... The world wants righteousness, and the world wants to advertise it. But as a believer, Jesus says to us, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. There's pressure for us to try and conform to that righteousness or to advertise our own righteousness just so that people will like us or not consider us unrighteous. 
Jesus says, when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's like, kind of just do it like that. There's a way that we give. There's a way that we fast. There's a way that we serve God. And I want to say as believers, have you received true righteousness? Have you received, have you accepted God's righteousness through his son and said, you are righteous. I've made you righteous. If you've received that, why? I want to say to you, that do not feel pressure to conform to the world's righteousness. Do not feel the pressure to satisfy their righteous requirements. I would have, I just want to say like, children of God, be free. Okay? You, you, on, you do not have to buckle under that pressure. You don't even have to concern yourself with it. Concern yourself with the, your father's good pleasure. Concern yourself with what pleases him. It is the, it's the freedom that Jesus had. He says, I do what I see my father doing. People have had a lot to say about Jesus and what he wasn't doing and why he wasn't fasting at this time and why he wasn't doing this, why he wasn't conforming to the standard of righteousness that the Pharisees and everyone else was putting forward. Jesus said, I'm not faced by you guys. I do what I see the Father doing. And I want to say for believers, receiving true righteousness, in Afrikaans they'd say, you don't have a, don't even worry about that other righteousness. You don't have it's not imposed on you by God, so just forget about it. And um, then the last thing I'll say is that there's a lot of pressure to compromise, either to conform or to compromise. <clears throat> a lot of pressure for us to bow our knees to the world's standard of righteousness, to humanism's standard of righteousness, to mankind's own standard of what is right. There's a lot of pressure for us to bow the knee to that and a lot of pressure for us to worship that. And I'll just leave the last example that I'll leave with you guys is um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in serving in a Babylonian kingdom, which is very much the kingdom that we serve. I would, uh, sure, you'd have to say a lot to convince me that we were somehow a Christian society. Yeah, there are Christians in society, but the way our society is geared, run, government, whatever it is, it is, it is thoroughly godless thoroughly humanistic thoroughly Babylonian in that sense and many times we will be pressured the same way that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were pressured to worship the things that that government worshipped or that that society worshipped we will face those same pressures and as I, as I said Christian do not, con, do not um, conform I want to say in light of those other pressures do not compromise trust the Lord and trust the Lord and when I say that Really, the Holy Spirit is our helper, our advocate, and our guide. I've been in one or two situations at work where, I don't know, something was put before me and you just sense, like, inside of you, just like, and you're not ready to even articulate it or explain A to Z why you have a problem with this, but the Spirit is, give, the Spirit is like, he's tapping on the shoulder and saying, this is not on. And you can respond. And I want to say that so came up in a discussion with Malalem. He had a similar thing. Sitting in a meeting, something came up and was put forth. The Holy Spirit is the first one to tell you, listen, this, this looks like delicious fruit, but it is not from God. And I want to encourage you, you needn't have all the answers. Be able to explain why you don't accept this worldview or whatever's being pushed onto you. Your primary helper is the Holy Spirit. So if you're feeling in any way daunted or it's like a lot to process, I want to encourage you, your primary port of call is God's spirit inside of you. And he is faithful to lead you into righteousness. He is faithful to lead you in his kingdom in righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Um, so I think I'm going to leave it there. So we've, we've been at it for quite a while now. But I hope that you've got a bit of armor there. Again, this is not the end of the discussion. I think we can talk about this for a long time. Lots of books have been written about it. And periodically we'll have to revisit worldviews and why we, what we believe and what we don't believe. But at the, the end of the day, I hope you would take Scripture as your sword and shield to stand firm in the evil day and having done all to stand. And trust the Holy Spirit. Trust God to lead you by His Holy Spirit. Amen pray for us Father God we thank you for your word we thank you for your faithfulness 
Lord, we realize that we swim in water that is many times toxic. And that there's a lot of deception and lies out there. But Lord, we pray, and I really pray for all of us, that we would proportionately be more, so much more enraptured by your truth, by your nature, your love, Father. Yes, we would need to understand some of the world's doctrines at times, but Father, I pray for each one of us that that we would be that that would be five percent of our ninety percent which is enraptured by you and your truth. And we just thank you that your truth is bedrock which we can build a house upon. We cling to you and your truth, Father. Help us by your spirit. I want to bless everyone here as they go out in many ways as soldiers into a battlefield. I pray, Father, grant us all discernment to stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen.